0: Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And it's been our hope over the last few weeks that we'd be able to take advantage of this strange time and the downtime that all the players have with no events being played to really get some accomplished guests that would be willing to share some of their wisdom and the experience with us and you, the listener. And we've really just been blown away by the response that we've got from folks that we've reached out to. And the coming weeks, We will release our chats that we've had with Adam Scott, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, and we're going to keep wearing guys out until they agree to come on so we can keep these great guests coming. Hopefully you've listened to our last few with Matt Wallace and Daniel Berger and last week with Jimmy Walker. And we have yet another major winner to share with you today, currently ranked number nine in the world, Webb Simpson. He's got six PGA Tour wins, including a U.S. Open, a Players, and a FedEx playoff event. He's played in three Ryder Cups, three President's Cup, and Cam and I really love chatting with Webb. From this discussion, it's really clear why he's achieved all those things. There's just a very clear path and roadmap that he has developed over the course of his career to separate himself, and he shares it with us in what I thought was a really thoughtful way, including some really actionable tips on how he goes about developing his hard skills, his iron play, putting, and his world-renowned short game. So we hope that you're doing well and staying safe during all this. We hope that our attempt to double down on our podcast efforts and provide some hopefully really cool learning opportunities from the best in the world are making this strange time just a little bit more bearable, more productive. So first, a word from Total Golf Trainer, and then episode 65 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Webb Simpson. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback that's custom to your swing. Learn to reinforce your lessons with drills that you can do at home, even while we're stuck inside. The Total Golf Trainer 3.0 kit is an all-in-one training kit for beginners all the way to professionals. We use it daily to solve all sorts of issues at Altus. The guys at TGT have provided a list of the most common ailments that the 3.0 kit can help solve. So if any of these sound familiar, you certainly need to check it out. If you've got clubface issues, whether that be extremely open or closed, takeaway issues, especially one that gets inside early. If you're too late off or across the line at the top of the backswing, it can help with battling losses. Of width or if you're trying to shorten your backswing and of course the dreaded over the top casting early release loss of posture early extension flipping All those things, the 3.0 kit can help you solve. It's the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing. With the easy-to-use adjustable training rods, you may increase and decrease the difficulty for use by any level of golfer, from juniors to beginners to advanced pros. Get instant feedback with Total Golf Trainer. It's all you need to learn your process and own your swing. To learn more and watch the videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at Train. Hey, Webb, we'll we'll kick things off by dealing with the elephant in the room, and I'm wondering how the Simpsons are dealing with coronavirus. We know that as difficult of a situation as it it is, that I'm sure that you found, I'm hopeful that you found some ways to find some positives out of the forced break.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of positives. You know, as a pro now since 2008, I haven't spent what's going to be the long, you know, two to three months at home without really getting on an airplane since I turned pro. And so... That I love. That is one of my struggles, I think, as a professional golfer, is saying bye to my kids and my wife every week or every other week. So that's a positive. And just life is fast and in a hurry for most people and for us. So it's been nice to slow down and really concentrate on each other. And I'm one of the few jobs that thankfully the golf course is still open around here. So I've been able to practice. I have a gym at my house. I've been able to work out. So the things that I normally do to get better at my profession, I'm able to do still. So that part hadn't changed a whole lot, but school at home has definitely changed. And and my wife has completed week one and it was a tough start, but a good finish. She had a a good rest of the week, but it was, it was just, you know, an adjustment and something to get used to.
2: Yeah. We're definitely getting better at things that we in some ways never thought we'd have to get better at, like homeschooling. And we're dealing with the same things here in Dallas for sure. But on the while we're here, you know, the goal of the podcast is have conversations with Amazing people, people that have done and continue to do difficult things to grow, whether they're athletes, entrepreneurs, or artists, to understand how they, meaning you, became great. And in knowing that the wisdom that comes from these conversations, these journeys, passed along through the podcast, has some positive effect on our listeners. And if we unpack your 2020 season to date, you put up a seventh at Shriners, second at RSM, a tenth at Hero, a third at Sony, and then a win at Waste Management. And given the the season that you were putting together, and the fact that success oftentimes leaves clues... What's going to be your formula for success, I guess the map that you follow, so to speak, out of this schedule break from a skills standpoint to continue where you left off when things resume?
1: Yeah, so that was a conversation my wife and I had on the airplane ride home from the players. She basically asked me, what is my plan, like you just said, to stay sharp and come back with the momentum I had and and be ready to play whenever commissioner calls us back to play? And I try to put a schedule in place to where I'm getting adequate rest, but I'm staying sharp in my mind. So my mental stuff, I'm doing two to three days a week. My golf practice, I'm not out there grinding for six hours, but I'm keeping a club in my hand. I'm staying fresh. You know, an example this morning, I did about an hour's worth of my chipping drills and bunker drills, and then about 45 minutes worth of putting drills. And that little bit, I feel like every couple, two, three days is going to go a long way when we go back out. And like I said, you know, staying sharp, it's hard to do. But if you like the last three days, I put together a 54 hole tournament with me and five other pros that live in Charlotte. We played three different golf courses. We try to treat it really like a tournament. You know, normally if you're playing with your buddies, even in a match, if you lag it up there a foot, you pick it up, but we <laughs> putted it out and we made it, you know, feel as serious as it could feel. And that was good for me because I feel like playing reveals areas you need to work on both physically and mentally and so i already have a checklist of what i learned the last three days of a couple things that need to get better and i'm going to work on those this weekend
2: common starting place that we typically start these conversations at is origin story can you give us some perspective on how you started in golf what age where it was who was the early influence that kind of uh lit the spark so to speak or created that spark
1: yeah so i was eight years old and we were down in wilmington north carolina in the summer. And our house was right on the putting green of of a Pete Dye golf course. And there was a kid there who was a year older named Kevin Larson. And Kevin was already probably the best in the state for his age and uh, just a really good player. And so this one week, we hit it off together and I kind of tagged along with him and he ended up getting a full scholarship to Georgia Tech and played golf. And we reconnected a few years later. But my dad, other than Kevin, my dad has always been the biggest influencer for me in golf. He played once or twice a week growing up, but once I got into it at eight years old, I started playing with him every time I played. Mm-hmm. And really that summer is where I got hooked. And I had a great the head pro at my home course in Raleigh at Carolina Country Club, Ted Kegel was the head pro. He became my coach and he was so influential, you know, from the time I started the game. So I was getting a lesson about once a month as I started. And my dad did such a good job early on of pacing me and he wouldn't let me move back from the red tees to the whites till I could uh, shoot even par or better. And same thing from whites to blues. And then tournament wise, I would play two to three tournaments a year for those first few years just to for him to get a gauge of, of my game. And once I was able to have some success at like a you know county or city level, we would go to state level and my dad was just he did great with that i mean i don't know if he knew exactly what he was doing but whoever was helping him with it for his (laughs) ideas he did a great job No doubt.
0: we've got a lot of our listeners will be kind of aspiring junior golfers and they really tune in when they hear a player in the story that origin story that we always like to tell and one of the questions that they have a lot is When you're, let's say, high school junior golf, what kind of time on task was there? Like how much were you playing? How much were you practicing during those years? Because they're looking to try to obviously replicate what you did to hopefully have similar success. What did the practice process look like at that age?
1: Yeah, so I would say I played a lot of golf and I putted and chipped a lot for practice. I didn't hit a lot of balls growing up. We didn't have a very big range at my home course and so it was often crowded and you know the members took preference over the juniors. So that was something, you know, that was one of the reasons I didn't hit a lot of balls. But honestly, I didn't like to hit balls. I like to go play with my buddies. And early on I learned like what competitive golf looked like. We would literally play eighteen holes for one milkshake that cost two dollars. But at the time it was a big deal because I had to tell my dad, hey, I got to charge an extra milkshake to our account because this kid beat me. So I think for juniors now, having a nice mix of playing and practice is good. I would err on the side of playing if I'm a junior because there's so much to learn through playing the game and scoring. And I look back and if I could change anything, I might have practiced a little more as I got better in high school. But overall, I just love to play and I love to compete and I love to have a putt on the last hole that meant something. Those were the moments I feel like they got me ready to to compete at the next level. Yeah,
2: beautiful. Uh, How important do you think it is for players, whether they're golfers or any other athletic endeavor, to have a peer group that is essentially pulling them along. I read that Brendan Todd was in your peer group in the local area and you guys would uh, go back and forth competing. How important do you think that was as like a foundational element that uh, competition kind of pushed you to, to practice harder and pulled you along in the on the development curve?
1: Yeah, that was huge. I mean, Brendan Todd moving to Cary, North Carolina might've been the greatest thing for my game. I was 13 from 11 to 13. I won like a lot of golf tournaments that I played in. Brendan comes to town and Brendan was better than me. He was beating me most of the time from like 13 to 15. And I think had he not come, I would have kept feeling like I was the best player around, but I don't know if I would have elevated my game as quickly, mm-hmm. but he inspired me It made me mad when he beat me. He was something, there was something tangible about playing with somebody better than you. Cause you, you, would, I remember thinking, we're the same age, but he's better. I want to get better. I want to be the best. So I would tell juniors nowadays to always have somebody who's, they can be a little older, but better than you that you can play with and kind of see what they're doing. Because if you grow up and you're, you're only playing with people that you're beating all the time, well, that's great if you really are the best, but you're going to have a big wake-up call when you get some of these national tournaments yeah. where you're dealing with the best players around.
2: Right on. That's great advice for juniors. And I would guess that probably 40 to 50% of our clients at Altus are professional players at some level. And many of them are cutting their teeth in professional golf fresh out of college. And there's a period of time in your career that I wanted to pull on, and that's to 2010 and it's when you were finding your footing on the PGA Tour. Do you recall anything specific that you learned in the first two years on tour that helped you progressively get better to the point where you were competing for wins and ultimately had the 2011 that you had with two wins and three seconds and finished uh, uh, second in the FedEx Cup?
1: Yeah, so I learned a lot. 2009 was kind of eye-opening, and I was kind of trying to learn these golf courses, learn how the tour works and all that. 2010 was a harder year, but the things I learned through those two years that really helped me was that – the veterans seem to not get as emotional as the younger players. They had the big view in mind, the year long season that no matter how good you are, you're going to have moments in the season where you're struggling and you just got to stay patient, stick with it. And it's amazing. Now looking back, how many times I've seen guys have a two or three month stretch where they're not playing well. Then all of a sudden they rattle off three or four top fives, you know, over the next two or three months. And so I learned that patience is a massive attribute of a good player on the PJ Tour throughout the year. It's a long season and you got to pace yourself. And then 2011 comes, I hired Paul Tasori to caddy for me. And all of a sudden I go from 213th in the world to top 10 in the world in a year. And I think he helped me so much on just how to play golf courses, think through club selection, all the strategy that. I thought I was pretty good at cause I got on tour at to a young age. I realized I was not good at it at all. I remember we were on a hole in Palm Springs at silver rock or yeah, silver rock, I think. And, um, it was a drivable par four, but I didn't like going for it. It was a little bit uncomfortable for me and I hit hybrid and he was like, w- why are you hitting hybrid? And I'm like, <laughs> cause I don't like driver. And he goes, why don't you like driver? And I said, cause I don't know. I just don't want to miss it left. And he said, well, hybrid, your fairways half the width, And if you miss it left, You can pitch it under the trees and still have a birdie putt. And so that was where I started. That was our second tournament together. And that was where I realized, man, maybe I need to listen to him more. Mm -hmm. And um, I became a more aggressive player off the tee with Polly, but a more conservative iron player into the greens. That has helped me tremendously. But we just hit it off from the start. We had a great friendship from the start. We were comfortable around each other. We were like-minded in our faith, in life, in family. And we just had a good time together. And that is huge for the PJ Tour to, to enjoy your caddy because you're together all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I want to jump forward to 2012, the U.S. Open Olympic Club. What do you remember about the early part of that week that was kind of a signal that this could be special? Was there anything that, uh, that happened? Did you, uh, find form that week? Cause weren't you coming off a miscut at Memorial?
1: Yeah, I missed a cut by eight at Memorial, I think. I'd had a decent start to the year, but coming in, I had no form. My practice rounds were not great. They weren't terrible, but they weren't good at all. And then Wednesday late, we go to the range, and we had like an hour and a half session. And Polly gave me a thought or two. I can't remember what they were now, but I started hitting the ball in the center of the face. I started hitting it good. And that was... I left the golf course Wednesday feeling way more confident than I had in a few weeks mm-hmm. on the PJ Tour. And Thursday, Friday were very average. I think I was in 28th or 29th place going into the weekend. And Saturday was one of those rounds. I shot two under, and I just, it was one of those no stress. Everything kind of was pretty good right in front of me, no mistakes. But I was surprised at the end of the day that my two under got me all the way, I think, to seventh or eighth place and a few back. And so, I'm like, wow, I'm back in this thing. And then Sunday I kept up good golf. I was I think two over through five, but then birdie six, seven, eight, ten, and got myself right back in it. But like I said, what I learned in two thousand nine and ten helped me that week. Like I'm I'm coming in, I shot eight over at Memorial, I have no form. I stayed patient though, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we found something. And even through two days, I'm not I'm not even in the top twenty five. But it's amazing how a good solid round will go a long way in a major.
0: One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Hey, moving past 2012 and into 2013, which, as you said, you were top 10 in the world, but then the uh, governing bodies decided that the one of the pieces that was foundational to your success, you're going to have to change your putting technique and obviously no more anchoring. So I'm curious, as to, I know that you made that decision to switch early, and I just want you to yep. kind of talk us through making uh, kind of the premature shift over so that you had a little bit of time to adjust.
1: I make the Ryder Cup team in 2014 as a captain's pick. And as soon as the match was over, Ian Poulter and I, we tied our match, went to the 18th hole. We go in the locker room. It's just me and Paul. We've just lost. And it's just us in there. And he said, hey, I got got an idea for us. Because this was September of 14. I think my next start was going to be November at the Dunlop Phoenix in Japan. He said, we've been putting below average for us why not let's go ahead and switch to a short putter. We'll get a year under our belt in 2015 before this ban takes effect in January of 16. That way we go ahead and get the media done with and all the attention and all that. He goes, what do you think? I said, I love it. Let's do it. The day before I'm supposed to leave for Tokyo, I have the short putter in the bag. I start to get nervous. I call Paul and I say, listen, I don't want to go all the way to Japan and putt poorly. I haven't put with a short putter in years. I'm taking the belly putter, uh, one more tournament. He goes, I'm going to respect your decision, but I think it's a mistake. I think we go do it. There's not going to be a ton of fans over there. Like we're going to be able to work. Let's do it. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. So I'm literally in my garage about 30 minutes later, I see my golf bag with the belly putter. And I just had this moment where I thought if I don't do it now, I don't know if I'm going to ever do it, you know, in the next year. And I took the belly putter out of the bag. I snapped it over my knee. (laughs) I literally did. I wasn't mad. I just thought the only way I'm not going to take it is if I break it. So I broke it in two pieces and I showed up, I met him in Dallas and I told him I had the short putter and he was fired up. And the belly putter still to this day is in my trophy case. So it's in two pieces. pieces. Yeah. But there was, I'd put it with that same putter, exact same putter for 10 years. And there was a lot of fear of unknown and, and this and that. Um, And it was a rough road at first. Like I had some good putting weeks, some bad putting weeks, but I realized after about three or four months that I needed some help. So I started kind of trying different putting coaches, experimenting different things, which ultimately led to 2016 switching to the arm lock.
2: You demonstrated courage in making that decision, albeit um, reactive to seeing your putter sitting in the garage. And I want to toss a quote out there to you. Life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And it's from an author that I read, Anais Nin. And more generally, the question that I want to ask is, where does that courage come from to do things like that? Or even more specifically, hit the shots that you hit under the most pressure-packed of situations where the entire world is watching? Because that's a question we oftentimes get, get asked by golfers that are starting out in the game or developing their competitive skills, or even they're trying to compete against you on the PGA Tour. Where does that confidence come from?
1: So for me, I have a phrase, that, and I tell myself that competition is a logical extension of practice. So we practice in a way to get ourselves better prepared to go hit a shot in competition. And so for me, mentally, when I'm in competition, there's fans around, there's cameras, there's your opponents, there's all these things out there that we're dealing with. And even for guys who are playing their local country club, they're playing in a match against their buddies, they're playing for the club championship, whatever it might be, there's all these factors around us that are screaming for our attention. But at the end of the day, when you narrow it down to what is actually in front of me that's important, well, I have my ball in front of me. There's a task in front of me. I'm trying to hit this ball to that place on the green. And so the more for me, I stay in my routine that I've come up with, and I literally am telling myself out there on the golf course, what is the task in front of me? What is the objective here? I'm not able to fully block out what's around me, but I'm able to focus better on what is important and what's in front of me. Because- Over time, we get used to the crowds, we get used to cameras, we get used to being able to do that, and the confidence comes from, you experience it, you learn. You experience it again, you learn. You experience it again, you feel a little better, you feel a little more comfortable. I remember the first time I had a one-shot lead on the 71st hole at Vegas. I look at the leaderboard, I see my name, I think it was 21 under, one-shot lead. I got nervous, I hit it left in the water, made double, lost, or I missed a playoff by one shot. Mm -hmm. And... On the way home, I remember thinking, okay, this this hurts, this stings as a player. My reaction on 17 when I realized that a one-shot lead was, was bad. It was negative. But two options now. I can sit in it, sulk in it, feel bad for myself, or I can learn from it. I can figure out why did I hit it left when I got nervous. And so I went to work. Me and Paul talked about it. We thought about it. I go to New Orleans in 2011. The next time I'm in contention, 17th hole. Uh, water left, this time a harder shot. Uh, Vegas hit seven, iron. now I got four iron. But I remember thinking that moment, hey, I learned from the last time what happened. I sped up, my arms kind of took over, my body became slow. I'm gonna kind of go through my whole routine on 17T a little slower. I'm gonna be really present and my body's gonna work for me this time. And I hit a four iron to like 20 feet, but right where I was looking. Mm-hmm. And that's where I realized in that moment, I'm like, okay, that's a great feeling when you take what you experienced as a negative and not fun to go through, but you let it make you better, and that's how I've kind of taken the approach of how to become more confident when there's a lot on the line. Because at the end of the day, if I have a six footer this year in Atlanta to win the FedEx Cup, I could think as I'm waiting the putt or reading the putt, this is for 15 million, this is to be FedEx Cup champion, this is for five years exempt on tour, you name it. I could go through all those things which are true, but those things have nothing to do with this six footer this six footer is a right edge putt. I've hit a right edge six footer my whole life. I'm going to go through my routine. I'm going to aim it right edge and I'm going to try to start online. And the more I stay in that, the ladder mentality, the more I kind of neutralize the situations and perform better.
2: Yeah. You can't put a price on the wisdom that you just shared. You can't put a price on the experience that you go through to learn those things. So certainly My gosh, I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. It gives me chills to hear you describe that. And I know that the audience that you're speaking with, it will resonate fully with them as well. And you spoke of feelings and I want you to help Me understand, and our audience understand, how did it feel as different to the 2012 US Open when you triumphed at the Players' Championship in 2018, given that you were in a different phase of your life and certain life events had occurred in the previous years, in fact, just the months previous to that tournament, to reach the pinnacle again, essentially?
1: A lot of people have asked me since then, because I said it's more meaningful than winning the US Open. What I meant by that was a few things. One, it had been four and a half years since I won. So any player goes through a drought like that. I never question, am I going to win again? But you certainly wonder when is it coming, and and the longer you wait, the harder it is. I lost my dad to Lewy body dementia in November of 2017, and so it was an emotional win being on Mother's Day. My mom was watching. I come from a big family; I'm one of six kids. So that was you know another emotional part of it. Polly, my caddy, grew up 20 minutes from. TPC Sawgrass. He grew up in St. Augustine. He lives there now. He grew up playing there. He's probably played a thousand times. It's his major. I mean, it's his number one, and he had never won it as a caddy. So all those things kind of factored into one week, and then I kind of had one of those career rounds on Friday, being 11 under through 16. It was just one of those moments as, as an athlete, as a golfer, where you know what you're doing. It's not going to happen much, maybe three or four times in your whole career. And so I was able to enjoy it. And it was an awkward thing playing with a seven shot lead on Sunday because the way the weather was, it was good weather. Wasn't that windy. And, you know, that golf course, you can go out and shoot five, six, seven under if you drive it well pretty quickly. And so I knew I had some work to do Sunday. But, you know, just everything I've been through with the with the putter switch and to be able to come back from that and become a great putter. I'll be honest. I never thought I would ever be a great putter. I thought maybe I can figure it out and be a good putter, but I never thought like I could put together a year or two stretch or more of being a great putter. And so, man, I, I think getting older, too, you-, you become more thankful for good golf because you've experienced more bad golf right. than you had when you were younger, and you, you come to appreciate it and just— I think it's wise for us to think, you know, we're never as far off as we think and we're never going to play, you know, at a top level for as long as we might think or hope. Mm-hmm. So you just got to you gotta be thankful for those moments. And I think I took it for granted in 2011, 12, 13, 14, making those team events, making it to Atlanta. Then I go three years without making a team event. So when I got back on that Ryder Cup team in 2018, I was probably the happiest one to be there. <laughs>
0: Hey, you talked about becoming a great putter again, and, and I did a, before we chatted, did a pretty good deep dive on your stats, and you have become a great putter again, and one of the top-ranked putters, and some other stats that I had to go back a really, really long time in the stats and, and looking through the years at when you weren't ranked out of like the top 20 and strokes gained uh, scrambling, and so it's been a skill that's been really, really good for a long time. I kind of want to dork out a little bit and understand what you're doing in your practice to maintain that and or maybe whether that's just you mentioned earlier and I kind of perked up my ears when you said I'm practicing or I'm trying to get better at maybe 20 different short game shots. So that means (laughs) that you're pretty good at adapting to different situations and maybe you could attribute your success in that skill area to that adaptability. But I just would love to hear you elaborate on why that's been so good for so long
1: when I was putting poorly, I felt like I, I became a student of putting for the first time in my life. I talked a lot to great putters and what they do. And, you know, we might see a Greg Chalmers, a Brant Snedeker, an Aaron Baddeley, a Jordan Spieth, these great putters. We might see them, their stroke might look different. Their tempo is going to look different. The way they grip, it's going to be different, but there's certain fundamentals that are the same for all these guys. And so I, I really went to school and I learned what I have to have in my putting to be a great putter. And, you know, the way you hold it, the type of putter you use, that stuff doesn't matter. And so for me, what's important to me is alignment and start line. And so that seems so simple, but I realized once I got Paul to start watching me putt, my caddy watches me putt when he's, when we're on tour, probably 90% of the time. And I would hit a six footer pre Paul watching me and I'm thinking I'm pushing it or pulling it. And he would say, where are you trying to start it? And I would say a ball. And he would say, you're lining it up two balls every time, and you're starting at two balls every time. So here's what that does for me mentally. My stroke is good. I'm starting it exactly where I'm aiming it and looking at it. I'm just aiming poorly. So simple fix. Let's work on alignment. And so I literally work on alignment every day that I play golf. I mean, some days I'm I'm taking the day off. But any day I'm playing golf, I'm working on alignment. And he says 95% of the time, I'm starting the ball where I'm lining it up. And this has come from him watching me now for years. And so mentally, I know if I can – line it well i'm going to start it online 95% of the time right. and so that has been a huge help and honestly it saved me so much time and effort and thought into my putting because i've narrowed it down to those couple things and so i think i always go back to that when my path gets off a little we have video of when i'm i've putted my best and, and we compare it so that's simple and then it, it, as far as chipping goes i've always been I would say a pretty good chipper, but my technique wasn't good. I hired Pat Goss in 2015 to help me because I go out. I played enough with Luke Donald at the time to realize he, he, chips and pitches and bunkers it so well, Pat and I hit it off and he's helped me a lot with my technique, but I feel like chipping and wedges to me are the two areas of golf that we can't really do too much of. I feel like we can stand on the range too long or even stand on the putting green too long, but chipping and bunker play and wedge game i feel like the part of the the areas of the game where repetition is so helpful so i try to get as many reps as 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 i can on the chipping green because every chip is different every bunker shot's different you know we have a lot of the same putts a right edge six footer on 10 is the same as a right edge six footer on 15 so that's kind of my mentality behind short game and it's easy to get off so i'm always trying to keep sharp and and make sure my technique's good.
2: Yeah. You made a comment there that caught my attention. And that comment was, it's easy to stand on the range and hit too many shots. How are you so so efficient then and such a good iron player with a limited, let's say, ball count that you might have on the range?
1: My time limit is 45 minutes to an hour because my caddy says at that kind of hour limit, he sees my body literally changing my golf swing. So my hips might slow down, my timing might get off. And so I might hit for more than an hour in a day, but I'm breaking it up, maybe two 45-minute sessions. Mm -hmm. Iron play, I love to work the ball. I love to flight the ball. I love to change ball position. I love, I'm kind of old school in my mentality of iron shots. If there's a left pin, I want to draw it. If there's a right pin, I want to fade it. I'm fascinated by iron play. I love playing with good iron players. And I've always played blades, because blades for me, I've tried different irons, but blades for me give me the, the most feel. And for me, I'm always, like I said, changing ball flight, changing height, changing curvature. That's just how I see the game. So my favorite guy to play practice rounds with is Bubba Watson Mm because he's pretty much one of the only guys anymore who really curves it a lot. So I love watching him and and how he does it. So those listeners right now, if they're junior golfers and they want to have some fun watching somebody, they need to go watch Bubba Watson play.
0: Is there like a go-to shot shape, though, that you depend on more than others? Or You you say that you're curving it both ways quite a bit, but in a pressure-filled situation, what's the shot shape that you're generally going towards?
1: So if I have a pressure shot and I'm able to draw it a little, what I'm most comfortable doing is going, making my ball position go a little bit back in my stance, because when I do that, I'm going to hit it more solid, or I'm going to hit it solid most of the time, and it's going to come out a little lower. I'm going to land it a little shorter than I normally would, but it's going to draw three to five yards. So if I'm able to do it, if there's a left pin on Sunday coming down the stretch, I'm very comfortable doing that. And that's my go-to. Now we don't have a ton of, I feel like a lot of our pins on Sunday are on the left side, but if we do have a right (laughs) pin, I'm not quite as comfortable cutting it, but I've gotten to the point now where I know that shot's so important. I've worked on it and I can do it, but ideally it's at the left pin for me.
2: Can we talk about game plan development? And this question comes from, a observation in passing. I was walking past you and Paul in the locker room one time. I didn't spend too much time, but I did overhear you as I'm minding my own business, so to speak. And you guys <laughs> were in what seemed to be a heated conversation or at least a animated conversation looking through a yardage book and unpacking a golf course. Number one, is that something that commonly happens? And number two, how often do you guys not see eye to eye in order to start I guess the process of executing on the strategy, the actual on-course stuff you talked about earlier, which is I'm more aggressive off the tee and more conservative into greens.
1: Paul and I, we got in an argument in 2016 on the golf course about what to hit off the tee. Like I was up to hit, it was my turn and we start, we're arguing and like, we're going at it. And like, I wholeheartedly disagree with him. He disagrees with me. It became this like, ah, I'm just going to hit it. And that's anti-me. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm very calculated- I don't make a decision like just because or an emotional decision. And I hated that feeling. So I don't know if it was his idea or my idea, but we decided, Hey, it started, where did it start? I think it actually started at the players in 2016. Those last couple of rounds, we decided, Hey, let's give ourselves 10 to 15 minutes before we warm up and every day. So we do this now every round, we, we have the pin sheet and we have the wind and we go through every hole, the wind direction off the tee, second shot pin location, and what we're doing is we get our arguments out early. So you probably heard an argument, probably was heated, but we get through it, uh, it. <laughs> each time. And I would say an average of one disagreement per round in that pre-round talk. But it's so nice because once I get out there, I know where the wind is on every hole. I know the pin. And Paul and I are big about missed spots. So I want to know everywhere around that particular pin where I can miss it and what kind of miss spot it is. So should I get it up and down every time? And then we have one where it's up and down half the time, and then it's up and down rarely. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, a back right pin usually rights pretty dead. I'll play conservatively like the other guys. But let's say back right pin, right of the green is actually okay. That's kind of a green light flag. And so we're playing so much golf on so many courses that it's hard to remember it all. And so when we go through it before, I feel good and ready when I'm out there.
2: Quick hit questions before we uh, before we close. You've been awfully generous with your time. I kinda express the appreciation enough. Swing thoughts. Absolutely. What's, what's your view on swing thoughts? Do you carry a swing thought with you throughout a round? Do you really have one, a swing feel?
1: I don't have any. So I have plenty of swing thoughts on the range, but when I go play, I'm not thinking one thing.
2: What about favorite event to play? Something on your calendar when you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, I can't wait to get there.
1: I would say the Masters. I know that's a, an answer most guys would say, but I love the week. I love the traditions. I love the part three tournament. And I've only had one chance to win there out of maybe eight tries. And, uh, it was about as much fun as I've had on the golf. You'll course. get more, mate. You'll get more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are the common time wasters that you see as far as things that you feel or activities or tasks that you feel like that are overrated that people spend a lot of time on doing, but don't offer very much in return?
1: I think working hard on mid to long irons, even like five woods I, f- I feel like those are not money makers the proximity with those is so far from the hole that you shouldn't spend that much time working on you know long irons i don't think i think your money makers are inside 150 so i would say spend a lot more time working on those numbers distance control shot shape flight control versus your five four five three iron shots
2: Yeah. Uh, In closing, it's a broad question. We could title it as giving back, and faith is important to you. is is important to many of your peers out there. You grew up in a family with where faith was a foundation. I think I read in your senior year in college, you said it was a turning point in your faith. Can you express how your faith not only helps you as a player, but also the Web Simpson Challenge, and how that's embedded into you giving back to create a greater good to junior golfers that are growing up.
1: We've had, I think, 10 years now of the Webb Simpson Challenge. And what the challenge is, it's a challenge to these high school kids to take a look at the faith that we're talking about, our Christian faith, challenge them to consider a relationship with Jesus, because me, including the 20 other volunteers we have, our lives have been changed through our relationship with Jesus. And so we try to give these kids a safe environment to express their questions, their doubts, concerns, whatever it might be about the Christian faith play golf, have a lot of fun. And every year it seems like the kids love it. They love the environment. I bring a lot of college golfers who are Christians to come volunteer. And a lot of these high schoolers are aspiring college golfers, so it's great to have them as well. But, yeah, my senior year, what it was, and I'll share this quickly, I played in Arnold Palmer Invitational as an amateur. And a reporter asked me the round after the round how I was able to make the cut You know, under those conditions. I had to birdie 17 and 18. And I just casually – said a verse, Joshua 1, nine had kept me calm and in and, and a peaceful mind out there all day. And come Monday, he had written an article based on that verse and what I had told him. And in that moment, I felt like I learned that, man, golf can be all about Webb Simpson and all about promoting me, or it can be about the Lord and the faith that he's given me and the gift he's given me and being able to play golf. And that's kind of the the thought process behind the Webb Simpson challenge. And I had so many people growing up older than me kind of pour into me and give me opportunities to get better. And so it's just, a—I feel like we hit a few things. We hit golf stuff. We hit life stuff. We hit faith stuff. And these high schoolers are going through a lot. We all know what they're going through, trying to learn and grow as a, as a man. And so it's a fun weekend that it's a highlight for me every year. Yeah. So thanks for asking about
2: it. Absolutely. That's a beautiful sentiment. You're a beautiful man. I appreciate knowing you. Beautiful in many ways. <laughs> I thank pre- you. <laughs> I, I appreciate knowing you. Uh, clearly, there's some love coming from me to you. I hope you feel that. Yes, I and feel it. There you go. And and you made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up again when you told us that story. So can't well, thank, thank you, you enough for spending for time. Me. Appreciate it, Webb. Yeah. All the best for the family. love
1: you guys are, are doing. Yeah. Thanks so much. You awesome. guys be good. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. All right. See you guys.
0: thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram. So follow at Altus Performance. And you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.